This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. Hey, good morning. It is good to see you here at Christian Chapel. My name is Chris. I'm the pastor here. We're thrilled that you're joining us. If you're joining us online, we want to welcome you as well. Um, It is a different view from up here this morning. And uh, as I was thinking earlier today, it's not often... Not often I have an opportunity to make jokes that I know are going to offend every single person. Um, So, if you don't believe self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, I won't make them. Uh, And and we'll just kind of all see what that looks like. But um, I do have some. I tried them out yesterday at the gym when my boys were playing basketball, and they're pretty good. Uh, You know, just reading the audience. I don't know if people laughed or not, because they were masked up, but um, I'm assuming I was the funniest guy at the gym, honestly. So, uh, but I I know we're all over the place. And how many of you will just say with me, you're just tired of all of it? Anybody? Okay, thank you. Thank you. Me too. Over it, done with it, and here we are navigating a, another thing. So I, I do appreciate that. Um, I know I've had conversations with many of you. I know our opinions at Christian Chapel are all over the board. Uh, but what I also know and what I want to say to every single person who's here, um, thank you. Just thank you for being willing to say, hey, here's, here's what I think, here's what I believe, here's how passionate I feel about this. Uh, but my commitment to this church, to this body, to worshiping Jesus together supersedes all that. And so, you know, there, there is definitely an element of we're kind of all taking a lot of stuff we passionately feel and saying, I'm going to shove it in my pocket for now and, uh, and, and come, and we're going to worship Jesus together. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're in First Peter. It's week five of our message series called You Are Chosen. Um, when we kind of had this in mind in the first of the year, it was before any of the COVID-19 stuff had come out. It was just, uh, First Peter was a... a it actually goes back to a seminary class I took uh, longer ago than I would like to admit now, honestly. But I uh, took a class on First Peter and just really remember my, my professor helping me see it in a way I'd never understood it before. And one of the things that, that he really helped us understand is this is a letter written to a group of Christians who are on the verge of experiencing some of the most intense persecution that the world had known to that point where there was a legitimate threat against them, loss of life, loss of liberty, loss of property, loss of family, loss of friends. Uh, And and, I mean, really, Emperor Nero comes along just shortly after this letter is written and begins to use Christians as human torches to light his garden parties at night. So we can all agree uh, they were facing some intense things coming at them. And one of the things that that our professor helped us understand, and and I think we see it all all through the scriptures, is the timeless nature of the scriptures. That we can take something written 2,000 years ago to a very specific people in a very specific place, and it makes perfect application for where we are today. And the way Peter does that is he doesn't spend all of his time, his, this short little letter, talking to them about the specific details of the problems or persecution they're facing. But instead, he's continually reminding them, you have been chosen, you have been elected, you have been called to follow Jesus. And he's chosen, elected, and called you for right here, right now, in these circumstances. So for us as followers of Christ today, I I think first of all, we all have to realistically acknowledge what they faced is worse than what any of us are facing right now. 
We have hassles, we have headaches, we have difficulties, we have suffering, but we do not have that threat of somebody might arrest you, cover you in tar, hang you from a pole, and light you on fire to light their party at night. Okay, so, so we can say different situation, but we can equally honestly say the truth of First Peter applies to whatever situation we find ourselves in today. No matter how disturbing, how troubling, no matter how deep the emotions run, no matter how uncertain your future might be, no matter what bad news you received this week, the message of First Peter to you is just as powerful and comforting as it was to the original recipients. And the message is, you are chosen, you are called, you're elected. You've been given a new birth into a living hope, an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. You have an inexpressible and inexhaustible joy. And because God chose you and elected you for now, his work in you is enough for whatever you're facing and whatever we're facing together. So Peter's approach to persecution is not to say, let's get down in the weeds of the details and kind of argue back and forth of the best way out. His approach is to say, Christians, lift your eyes up. Remember who you are. Remember who has called you and live out your calling right where you are. It's a, it's a different form of encouragement than what many of us would prefer. Because we'd rather get into the weeds. But Peter's more concerned with your identity. And if you live out your identity, Jesus is going to be with you in the details. Now, the, the passage we're looking at this morning is in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. And he's going to talk to us about how we are built together, we're built to last, and we are built to stand out. There's going to be, if, if you've been around church any length of time, there's going to be a couple verses in here that you're going to remember. You've, you've probably heard them several times. There's going to be some others that you've probably just skimmed through on your way to some of your favorites. Uh, but my hope this morning is that as we turn to the scriptures, we hear again the call of Christ, that we are called to him, we're called to each other, and in every season, he's the one who holds us together for the sake of his work and his witness in the world. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. If not, it's going to be here on the screens for you. Peter is speaking about Jesus here in verse 4. He says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. First thing Peter tells us is that we all are being built together like a spiritual house through the presence of Christ. So he uses two phrases. He says, Jesus is the living stone, 
Right, it, later on, he'll talk to us about he's the cornerstone. We'll get there. But Jesus is a living stone, and we all now, like living stones, are being built together. And I love that idea, the, the analogy of a house, because it's something we understand across the, the time from when Peter wrote to now. We understand across culture. Every culture understands the idea of home and houses. Right? And, and houses and a home, it's a place where you're supposed to feel safe. It's a place where you should feel secure. It's a place that provides shelter. It's a place where you should be at rest. It's a place where you should find comfort. It's a place where you should know each other and be known by them. It's a place where you should feel loved. It's also a place where not everybody's always going to get along, but our unity as members of this house binds us together even in difficult seasons. So when we start talking about houses, I, I know we're not all builders. I am, I am for sure not one. But I do understand every house has a, a form and a function. Right? And, and the form takes different shapes in different places, but the function is always the same. Shelter, security, safety, all of these types of things. And so Peter's telling us, you are being built together as a house, and part of your function is to be a physical space in the world where others can point and say, those are the people of God. That's what a chosen people looks like. That's what a holy nation looks like. No longer the geographical boundaries of a specific nation, but everywhere God's people gather, the church exists and his house is being built. Now when Peter writes his letter, the, the, form, and function of church, or the form of church that you and I experienced this morning was different. They did not have uh, separate locations where they would all gather together. They were largely meeting in homes. That doesn't mean they wouldn't have done this. It just means they couldn't. They didn't have the availability. But even for Peter, growing up as a Jew, he was familiar with the idea of synagogues in different places. Dedicated spaces in a town where people would go to learn, to worship, to enjoy community with each other. And now he's writing to us as the new church and telling us, you are being built together. So wherever you are, what does Jesus tell us? Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Whenever Christians gather together, we become the house of God in that place. And the function of the house of God is to provide a place of safety and security. A spot where others know, I can go there among those people. It may be a physical location like Christian Chapel. It may be a small group that meets in your neighborhood. It might be a group of students that meet at your school. But wherever that is, the house of God is being built. And the function of every house of God is to draw people to him. Now, the function of a house is something I understand in, implicitly. Like, I just, I get that. I need a shelter. But there's another idea with, with homes that doesn't come as naturally to me. It's that, that homes are, you know, they're functional, but they're also beautiful. And I, I get that that's a, a cultural thing at times, but regardless of, of your culture, your country, your economics, every person Typically, the, the space that they live, they try to make it more beautiful, more inviting. It's part of the comfort, the security that we feel, right? So now, again, I don't, I don't naturally come to this understanding. When I was a, a freshman in college, so uh, packed up my, my, uh, all my belongings as an 18-year-old young man, and um, it, it was interesting. I'd watched my sister leave for college the year before, and my parents uh, had to rent a U-Haul trailer for her dorm room. And uh, she had rugs and lamps and chairs and all kinds of stuff. And, and my, my parents told me, hey, go, go pack for college. You know, we're leaving in two days. And I was like, okay. And I, I think I came out. I had one Rubbermaid tub and one suitcase. I was like, I'm ready to go. I'm like, where's your stuff? I'm like, this, I got clothes. What, what else do I need? 
And my mom was like, you need towels and a bed. I'm like, oh, okay, let's go to Walmart. So we go to Walmart, get those few things. We still, uh, I think then maybe two suitcases and a Rubbermaid tub. Not much. But we go, and, and I like move my stuff in, and my family goes to check into their hotel. Angie and I were dating at the time. And so I, I finished um, decorating my room, which meant I hung my clothes in the closet, I put my clothes in the drawer, and I put my sheets and bedspread on. And I called them because they were like, hey, you decorate your room. We're going to go check in. Call us when you're done. We'll go to dinner. And so I don't think they'd even got to the hotel. And I called them like, I'm done. Uh, I'm ready to eat. They're like, well, it's going to be a while. So they come back, and they all, they all come up to my room. My older sister happened to be there that weekend. Angie came up with them. And they walked in. It was white cinder block walls. And they, they walked in. And Angie and my sister both, first words out of their mouth, it looks like a prison cell in here. You know, which for me is like, well, how do you know what a prison cell looks like? Uh, is there something we need to talk about? But, but it was just like, what are, you, what are you talking about? They're like, you're supposed to decorate your room. Like, I, I, I left my Michael Jordan poster at home. I don't know what else I'm supposed to decorate with. But they gave me such a hard time. I, I went to Walmart later that night, and I found uh, one poster that I liked. And so I bought that one poster, and I put it right above my twin bed, and, you know, scotch tape to the cinder block wall. And the next day before they left town, I said, hey, come back in. I decorated and so they came back in, they're like, it looks like a prison cell with a poster. And, but I, I just didn't quite understand this idea of the, where you live should be a place of beauty, should be a place of comfort. Thankfully, I married Angie, and she now takes care of that in our house. I mean, literally, if it wasn't for her, you would come to my house, and it'd be like lawn chairs and a big TV uh, is, is probably the way I would decorate. But she's helped me understand, you want your home to be an inviting place. You want it to be a comforting place, right? When, when you walk in the doors, ideally, you want to walk in and just feel like, oh. Now, I know some of you, you have little kids at home. You're like, what's that like? Um, you know, but I promise someday it, it does come back, and everybody with grown kids is like, you're going to miss it. I'm like, shut up. Uh, you know, <laughs> I look forward to saying that in 20 years, too. Uh, but but this, this idea of the function of the home, safety, security, but there's also the beauty, the invitation of the home, the idea that, hey, you're welcome here, you're loved here, you can rest here, you can be at peace here. And when Peter says we're being built together, we are being built together both for the function but also for the beauty. Right? We're here to say, hey, this is what the people of God do, but we're also here to say, this is what the people of God look like. This is an inviting place. This is a place where you can find rest. This is a place where you can be at peace. This is a place where we can come together. Now, he says Jesus is the living stone, and he's the one who's building us together. Some of you, you have uh, far more experience building than I do. I mean, most of my building experience is limited to uh, missions trips where there was somebody telling me exactly what to do. But what I know about building homes, about building churches, building schools, any of the things that I've ever worked on is when we show up, there's a pile of raw material. And so it might be a pile of lumber, it might be stone, it might be brick, it might be cinder blocks, it might be concrete, whatever it is. But I know every time that raw material has to be cut, has to be chiseled, has to be formed in just the right way for it to all fit together to build the house that the plans call for. Now, when you and I are called to Christ and called to each other, there's going to be an experience of some cutting away, right? For me and you to be built together, Jesus is going to have to arrange us in just the right way. And as he continues to add more and more and more pieces to his house, every new piece causes some adjustments for all the other pieces, 
And so he gets that privilege as the builder, the architect, the designer, the owner, the creator, the foundation of the house. He's the one who says, hey, here's where I want you, but we've got to knock some of this off. And it takes all kinds of us to build the house that we're called to be a part of. But here's what we have to understand. To be called to Jesus is to be called to be built together. The scriptures have no idea of an individual experience of Jesus Christ outside of the church. The church is called the bride of Christ. The church is called the one Jesus loved and gave himself up for. Jesus puts a high value on the church and he tells us when you're called to me, you're called to each other. And these two ideas cannot, must not, will not be separated. Every Christian is called to Christ and to community. It's the same call. There's a a guy named C.E.B. Cranfield who wrote this this short little um, commentary on 1 Peter back in, in the 1960s. He lived in England. And he, had this, he has this beautiful description of our call to community. He says, To accept the Redeemer means also accepting the people whom he has redeemed. The freelance Christian who wishes to be a Christian but is too superior to belong to the visible church on earth in one of its forms is simply a contradiction in terms. Everywhere, the Bible presupposes a people of God. That is every bit as true of the New Testament as the Old. The scriptures know nothing of an individual piety that is out of touch with the living body of God's holy people. And so so I think we all understand that, but just in case, everywhere the Bible presupposes a people of God. There's an idea, you can't find a scripture where God calls someone to himself without calling them into community as well. And if this is the value Jesus places on community, on us being built together as a spiritual house, then there's a couple implications for us. First of all, it means we need to be careful how we talk about the church. Because the church is not our idea. The church is not man's institution. The church is the bride of Christ. The one that he loved enough to die for. Now, if if you're a a husband in the room and you love your wife, just imagine with me for a moment. After service, someone comes up to you and you're like, hey man, love you, kind of hate your wife. She's the worst. Now, again, we're assuming you love your wife, okay? Healthy, strong marriage, thriving, because some of you all be like, let's talk, Uh, right? And, And... we have marriage mentors available for you, by the way. So, uh, but, but for the rest of us, you tell me that, we're going to have some problems. Chris, love you. Not a fan of Angie. Guess what? I'm not a fan of you now. And mask or no mask, you're going to know how I feel very quickly, right? And it might be so forceful, my spit might still fly through the mask onto you. Because it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to elicit a passionate response from me because we are one, right? And you're not going to say something to her without saying it to me. But as Christians sometimes, and I know I've been guilty of it. Well, you know the problem with the church. You know the church is doing. You know the church. I love Jesus, but I hate the church. You can't, you can't say that. 
you can critique some institutional decisions. You've maybe had some bad experiences with people in leadership. You might have seen it done wrong. But there is no opportunity for Christians to reject the church. The church is the body of Christ in the world. The church is the house that's being built together. So we want to be cautious how we speak about it. And we also want to value our participation in it. But it has never been more convenient for Christians to love Jesus and kind of have half a foot in the church and half a foot out of the church. Now, I I love that we're able to stream. Okay, and I know we've got people watching from out of town, from out of state. We've got missionaries in other countries who, uh, this is their form of worship. Some of you are home because of uh, the virus that's going around and health concerns. And, and I get all that. I'm not talking to, to you. Uh, but I, I do think we face a temptation at times to think like, oh, as long as, I, as long as I've got a little virtual participation, that's fine. Listening to a podcast during the week does not check your box of being part of the church. A worship playlist does not mean I'm taking my place and being built together in the body of Christ. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with those things. They're good, but they are supplemental. They're not primary. So we're using those to build ourselves up, but we're going to be part of the church. And again, we're not just talking about are you physically here on a Sunday morning, but are you participating in being built together as the church, as God calls us to? And for our our high school students, as you guys are going off to college, this is one of the biggest challenges you're going to face. Finding your place in a local church in the community you find yourself in. And and one of the the biggest lies that a lot of college students believe is, I will be absent from the church for four years and I'll just re-engage when I'm done. I'll just do some devotions, I'll watch some podcasts, I'll do some stuff online. But what we find is when we are not physically together with the body of Christ, we drift. And when we drift from the body of Christ, what we're actually doing is drifting from Christ. Because he says he is the living stone and the cornerstone, and we are built together in him. So you can't separate the two. Now, now the past four months have given us a, a case study in what happens when we fail to gather as the church. The Barna organization came out with some research that they, they had just done, uh, just published last week. They'd interviewed American Christians, you know, a wide spectrum from all over the nation, and they asked them a couple questions. They asked them, before the shutdown, were you an active participant in church? And they had some criteria to decide that. And then they asked them, after the shutdown, if your church closed, did you continue to worship with your church and engage in community online or possibly maybe join another church because your church didn't have those opportunities? And then the third question they ask them is, if you're still in a place where things are shut down, have you continued to engage with the church? Or if it's reopened, have you engaged with the church? And what they found is that one-third of American Christians who say, yes, I was active before, yes, I engaged initially, one-third now say, I have no participation in the church. Now, why is that? It's not because they woke up one day and decided, I hate the church, I don't believe in this, I'm not going to be a part of it. It's just a matter of convenience, and it's a matter of choosing the easy option. And and so streaming and virtual and all these things, they're good, they're helpful, there's a time, there's a place for them, they're supplemental. There might be seasons where you are physically incapable of gathering together, but the scriptures are clear to us. For as long as you are physically able, you should be gathering together. 
And when you are physically unable, the church should be coming to you to maintain that fellowship and that unity. But when we drift apart, for some of us, it's not long before we stop. Again, we're four months into this, and one-third of American Christians have said, I'm no longer active in my church. These are not nominal Christians that were Christmas and Easter only. These are people who are actively attending, participating in worship and serving, and now say, I'm out. Again, not because they've rejected Jesus, but because they've just fallen apart. And, and I think we all experience this over the, the course of the shutdown. I know at least Angie and I did in our house. Initially, there was a little bit of like, this is kind of convenient. It's really, you know what's nice? It's nice to sleep until 7.30 or 8 on a Sunday morning. I know some of you guys do that all the time. But, but for me, like a normal Sunday wake-up call is 5 a.m. Well, my alarm doesn't go off and I just sleep till I wake up, right? 7.30, 8 o'clock, get up, drink some coffee, leisurely breakfast, hang out with the family. Hey, somebody turn on church when it's convenient for us. You know what's even more convenient than watching church at home? not watching church at home. Any, I mean, full confession. Anybody get there by week seven, eight, or nine of just like, uh, not. I, mean, I mean, I got there. I'm like, I am not watching myself on TV with my kids ever again. It's for the history of mankind. They make fun of me. They're mean. They're not nice. You know, they mock my hand gestures. They tell me no one knows that word. I'm like, it's because you have a bad education. Uh, you know, and so it's it just like our worship devolved into family insults. Uh, and so it's just like, we're done. We are done. But you know what happened when we could come back together? There was this idea of, okay, now, now th- this is what we're meant to experience. There's a togetherness that's found. And the being built together is not just like, hey, all the two by fours hang out over here and all the windows hang out over here and all the doors here and all the weird bathroom pieces over here. Like, but no, we are all, all built together. It takes all kinds. And that means we're not always going to agree on everything. It means we're going to have wildly different opinions. It means going into an, a presidential election, express your opinion intelligently, express it passionately, and leave room for the possibility that there could be a Christian who disagrees with you. And it doesn't mean they've forsaken Jesus. Maybe it just means they're a different part of the house, right? They're that wing and you're this wing, but we're all part of the same house. We're here together. So Jesus tells us we've been built together. Peter also says... We have been built to last. So if you skip down to verse, uh, verse 6, it says, Scripture says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Jesus isn't just the builder. Peter says he's the cornerstone. He is part of the house with us. I'm, I'm pretty sure we don't have a lot of... Um, bricklayers, stone workers, masons, right? Um, but some of us, were at least familiar with the idea of a cornerstone. The first stone you set in the building. The squareness, the stability, the strength of the house rests on that. Or if you've ever been part of, like, the church I grew up in, it, it had a cornerstone. It was this, this old two-story uh, limestone building in Narc City, Kansas, and it had a cornerstone that was at, at about eye level for a kid. And the basement was below, um, and then the, the first floor was above. But in that cornerstone, it, you know, it even had the little inscription of like this building dedicated to the Lord on this date, this year. And it, it was just that idea of this is the spot where if you get this one wrong, 
the rest of the building will eventually crumble. And what Peter's telling us is you can trust that you've been built together and you can trust that you will stay together because Jesus doesn't just tell you where to go, but he's the glue, the nails, the cement that holds you together. It's, it's possible Peter had in mind the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 when Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. When Jesus is the foundation, the cornerstone, the living stone, we can trust he will hold us together no matter what may come our way. There is not a single moment of your life that catches him off guard. There is never a cultural or political issue that surprises him. He knows all of it, and he said, I'm going to build you as a house, and I'm going to hold you together, and those who put their trust in me will never be put to shame. You can be confident. Right, but we do have a responsibility to continually remind each other of this idea. Because our natural desire is to drift apart. Our natural desire is to lose our connection in relationships where it's hard or difficult and to just gravitate towards those that we agree with on everything. But Peter's helping us understand, no, you've been brought together in Christ and you are held together by Christ. He is part of the building, the part that secures it and the part that holds it all together. Uh, Two weeks ago, we were at Royal Family Kids Camp. It's a free week of camp that Christian Chapel does for kids in foster care. And there's just a few simple rules at Royal Family. Well, let, let me rephrase that. For the adult staff, there is a monstrous list of rules at Royal Family. Like there's, you know, eight, 12 hours worth of training you go through of do this, do this, don't do that, wear this, don't wear that, go here, don't go there, all of these sorts of things. But for the kids, when they get to camp, they're told, hey, there's just three simple rules, right? And, and one of those rules is stick together. You just got to be together. You've got to be with your cabin. They've even got a little, little symbol. They'll tell them, hey, stick together. We're going to stick together. So on day one, day two of camp, you see the counselors and the staff spending a lot of time going, hey, we got to stick together. We got to stick together because when you get a group, you get four, seven-year-old, eight-year-old boys outside at a campground and you go out, what's the first thing they do? Scatter, right? Just, I want to go here, I want to go there. So it's constantly, hey, let's stick together, let's stick together. Now, the, the ability of that rule to work for the first day or two, it rests entirely on the counselor and the staff members. Because the kids just, for the most part, want to do what they want. And you ask four, seven-year-old boys, hey, what do you guys want to do? I want to go here, I want to go here, I want to do that, I want to do that. You tell some little 10-year-old boys, hey, time to get out of the creek, and we're going to go listen to Mr. Chris tell you a story from the Bible. Or you think their response is like, can't wait. Yes, please. Can we spend the whole day? No, they're all like, I don't want to go. That guy's boring. One kid one day, uh, he, was, he was not wanting to come in, and, and I went out and said, hey, buddy, what's wrong? He told me, I hate that freaking music. Like, okay, well, you know, we got to stick together, and uh, here's some earplugs, and, you know, thankfully, I'm equipped to deal with this complaint. So come on. Um, you know, you just, you, we're, we're part of the body. Let's go. Let's do it together. But we're constantly stick together, stick together, stick together, stick together, stick together. And it works because the counselors have taken that responsibility. But what you see around camp by the end of day two, day three, is the kids have started to adopt that language and they've started to adopt that action. And they've started to, you know, one of their buddies will hold off. Hey, we've got to stick together. Hey, come back here. Some of them, maybe they've got an older counselor. They're hollering at him like, hey, old man, stick together. Get up here with us. 
Get in the creek with us. Stick together. It's amazing how quickly a kid can manipulate a rule to their benefit. I mean, just like, wow, you guys are geniuses. We just need to funnel it in the right direction now. Uh, but, but you see it, just that idea of stick together, stick together, stick together. In the body of Christ, you and I have a responsibility to each other to constantly say, hey, let's stick together. Let's stick together. Let's stick together. And it's, it's the responsibility first of mature, experienced Christians to say to those who are coming after them, let's stick together. Hey, let's stick together. Let's stick together. But eventually it becomes the responsibility of every Christian to look at every other Christian. And again, we're not saying just the people who go to Christian chapel with you or the people in your home group. But everyone who confesses Jesus Christ as Lord is part of the house we're being built into. And we're saying, hey, we're going to stick together. We're going to stick together. And when all of those fights and all of those issues and all of those disagreements try to flare up, everything that tries to pull us apart, we're constantly saying, no, 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 we're going to stick together. We're going to stick together. We're going to stick together. Those who put their trust in him will never be put to shame. Let's stick together. Now, sometimes that does mean we're, we're engaging with each other and saying, hey, I've missed seeing you. Hey, you're shooting that text. I mean, my, my general recommendation to you is anytime there's another believer that their, their name or face comes in your mind, you think, I haven't seen them in a while, just shoot them a quick text. It's not, now for some people that might be offensive of why are they getting in my business? But for, for normal, healthy people, the idea that somebody misses you, it's kind of nice, right? If, if I'm gone for a week or two from Christian Chapel, I don't mind getting a text or two that says, hey, we missed you today. Hey, how's it going? You know, it's much better than the, uh, take another couple weeks. Like, if I got to choose, I'll, I'll choose the one that says, you miss me. No, not, now, on the other hand, sometimes we, we miss a couple weeks, and we might get our feelings hurt and think, well, nobody cares. Nobody knows. And, and so there's a challenge for us there as well of, hey, if you can be gone for six or eight weeks and nobody knows, have you really entered into community? Have you really entered into relationship? Or is this just a place you show up five minutes before it starts and leave five minutes before it's over and just kind of check your box and move on? Because the call to church is not just a call to worship participation on a Sunday morning, but to an all-of-life connection with each other. Okay, so, so when you're gone, like people in your home group should text you. That's fine. That's, that's good. That's acceptable. They're not trying to police your church attendance. They're trying to remind you, hey, we're going to stick together. Hey, we miss you. Hey, we love you. Hey, we care about you. Right? Now, I, a couple, probably six years ago, I think it was right after I became the pastor at Christian Chapel, um, there was a, a, a guy who'd started coming to the church, and they'd come for four or five months, and, and great guy. Uh, suddenly, they, they were gone for a couple weeks, and I got an email uh, that said, hey, uh, just so you know, we're, we're leaving Christian Chapel because we didn't come to church for the last three weeks because we wanted to do an experiment to see if you people really cared about us. And no one emailed, no one called. So we know you don't, and we're out. And I was like, oh, uh, I'm sorry. I have deacons who sometimes miss four weeks of church in a row. Uh, didn't know. Really sorry about that. But it was like, that was a bridge that was never restored. So, so as you hear this, you might already be thinking, of like, yep, I'm out. Those people don't care about me. Hey, mutual responsibility here. Right, we're going to be known, we're going to know by others. And, and I can't, if I've never sent an I miss you text to someone else when I don't see them, I, can't, I shouldn't be expecting that from them. We're going to engage ourselves in community. We're going to remember we're built together and we're built to last. No matter what the circumstances may be, no matter what obstacles we have to overcome, no matter what deep or difficult conversations we have to have, we're going to stick together. 
We're going to encourage one another. And again, it's not just like, I know Christian chapel is not the place for everyone. But anytime someone leaves here to go to another church, my only thing is, hey, please be faithful there. Don't leave as a full participant in the body here to go be a member of an audience somewhere else. And I would say the same thing to someone coming here from another church. of Don't leave as a full participant there to be a member of an audience here. Let's stick together. Let's be fully engaged, fully aware, fully participating because Jesus has told us, I'm going to build you together and what I'm building will last. When Jesus is the cornerstone, when he's the foundation, the rain, the winds can come, but the building remains secure. So Peter tells us, you've been built together, you've been built to last, and the last thing he tells us is you've been built to stand out. Now this is the portion that's probably familiar to most of us. You are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So again, Peter's telling us, look, you've been chosen, you've been called into this house that's being built. And this house that's being built is unique. It's unlike anything else in the world. You're a chosen people. You're a holy nation. He's telling us as the people of God, as the church, we serve the same function that Israel served. They were to be the holy nation, the called out ones, to serve as a sign to the world of God's goodness and grace and what it looks like to live in relationship with him and to have open doors of invitation for the world to join them in this relationship with God. And now, as followers of Jesus, Peter is again lifting up our identity to us and saying no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter how Rome may try to persecute you, no matter how you may suffer, no matter what difficulty you may encounter, you must remember you are a chosen people, a holy nation. God has called you out, and those he calls out, he takes care of. And so we rest in our identity. I'm the son, I'm the daughter of God. He's a good father who gives good gifts to his children. And no matter how the circumstances of life may create turmoil in my soul, I can rest right now knowing because he's called me out, he's caring for me, he's leading me, he's guiding me. We're the chosen people, a holy nation. And then Peter uses a term that that as American Protestants is hard for us to understand. He says, you're a royal priesthood. Now, as Americans, we don't, we don't do royalty, right? We just uh, we don't have kings. We don't have queens. Our only use of that uh, in our culture is occasionally the husband who refers to his wife as my queen all the time, right? Like, you're the queen of the burbs, baby. Just you and the subdivision. And, you know, we've got these little minions running around that actually we serve. They don't really serve us, but you know, we can pretend at least that I'm the king of this castle, you're the queen of this domain, but, but we don't actually get it. We don't really understand. Like Royalty is something you are born into. You can't work your way up to being a royal person. The, the monarchies around the world, these are, these are families where generation after generation after generation, they have lived in power, they have lived in privilege, and they've lived with the responsibility of governing and caring for their people. Now, if there were Jewish members in Peter's churches in, in Turkey, they would have known when they heard the term royalty, they would have immediately associated it with the line of King David. Oh, man, that, that's the way God has chosen to lead our nation is through David. 
That's the way, and they knew I have no chance of becoming part of the family of David because I'm, my genealogy just isn't there. But they understood for David's descendants, there was always the promise that one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever. And now Peter is saying, you are royalty. You've been elevated into an experience that you never could have attained on your own. Then the second term he uses, you're a royal priesthood. Now again, the, the priesthood for the Jews was the same way. This was something you were born into. For us as Protestant Christians, we believe in the priesthood of all believers, which means God can call you into any form or function. But for Peter, for for Jews, the idea of the priesthood was that was a restricted opportunity to serve God. And it was a special opportunity to serve God because they had access to the things of God and the temple of God in a way that no one else was ever allowed to have it. But they also bore responsibility. They were to represent the people to God, and they were to represent God to the people. And what Peter says is you now are being built together into a spiritual house. You're a chosen people. You're a holy nation. You've been called out of darkness into his wonderful light. And now you live as royal priests. You have the responsibility to live and to display what it looks like to live a life surrendered to God. Just like a king, you have the opportunity and the privilege of clearing the path for others to see the ways of God and to live in them. Just like a priest, you've been given special access into his presence, not just for your own benefit, but to invite others into it with you. You have the chance not just to represent Jesus to the world, but to introduce the world into the same experience of Jesus that you have. You're a royal priesthood. Scott McKnight writes about this passage in a a way that, that honestly just says it better than I can. He says, we have become in Christ people with unique and enduring privileges, with a massive status change, living before the holy and sovereign God who by his grace has made us his people forever. We have been elevated to the greatest places in God's kingdom, those who rule with Jesus and minister God's grace to others. Those who rule with Jesus and minister God's grace to others. Now, I know when we leave here this morning, you go back and you're going to pick up all kinds of identities. You're going to be mom, you're going to be dad, you're going to be husband, you're going to be wife. You're going to be the neighbor, you're going to be the friend, you're going to be the boss, the employee, you're going to be the student, you're going to be the college student, you're going to be the the entry-level worker. You're going to be the grandkid. You're going to be the quiet one. You're going to be the loud one. You're going to be the passionate one. You're going to be the one who doesn't care. You're going to be all kinds of different things. But what Peter is telling us is, hey, before any of that, you go out as those who rule with Jesus and minister God's grace to others. This is how, why do we stick together? Because we are built together in Christ and we've all been given the same job. We're going to rule with Christ And we're going to minister God's grace to others. But before we can start ministering to others out there, we've got to minister that grace to each other in here. We've got to remember, we are built together. So I'm going to lay down everything that separates. I'm going to cast aside all the secondary issues. And I'm going to remember, I have been created by God. I am a chosen people, a holy nation. And what is my purpose in life? To call out the praises of the one who's called me out of darkness and into his wonderful light. No matter what is going on in the world, the church always has good news. Darkness cannot overcome the light, but the light of Christ 
always wins. There's nothing that restricts it. There's no cultural phenomenon. There's no virus. There's no political election. There's no economic hardship. There's no relational difficulty. There's no personal trauma. There's no sickness. There's no suffering that can defeat the light of Christ in you. We are those who have been called out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And so we're going to proclaim his praises. And that's how we're going to finish this morning. We're going to sing just the, the rest of that little song they, they let us in earlier. Christ be magnified. And as we sing it, there's, there's a line in there. I'm, I'm probably not going to get them perfectly right. But I, I think it says something like, I won't trust my feelings, but I'll rest in your truth. I mean, you'll know when we get there. I just butchered it, but you'll know it when we get there. Feelings and truth. And then it says, if the cross brings resurrection, then I'll be crucified with you. And it's just this idea of there are a thousand things that vie for my attention, my passions, my emotions, and my energy. But my primary calling in life is as one who's been called out of darkness and into light. And now Jesus is building us together into a house to present that picture to our world. You'll stand with me. I want to pray for you. And then the band's going to lead us in that final song. Jesus, we come to you this morning thankful for the opportunity we have to gather in worship together. Thankful that you have called us to yourself and you have called us to be built together in you. Lord, my first prayer today is for those who don't know that they belong in your family as their sons and your your daughters. I pray today, Lord, that as your spirit is convicting them of sin, is revealing the gap between who you've called them to be and how they're currently living. Lord, I pray that their response, whether they're in person or online, would be one of repentance. Just praying that that quick prayer from the depths of their heart of Jesus, forgive me of my sins and welcome me into your house. Lord, I pray as they do that, that your spirit would flood into their hearts and their minds, bringing them an assurance of their forgiveness, of their new standing and new identity in you. And Lord, my second prayer is for those of us who have said yes to you. We've accepted our place in your house. Help us now, Lord, to make a commitment to stick together, to be a part of your work and your witness in the world. Show us areas where we may need to lay down our preferences. Show us areas where we may need to reach out to those who've been drifting away. Show us areas where we may need to re-engage ourselves. But Jesus, remind us, you have built us together for your eternal purpose of declaring your goodness and your grace in the world. So Lord, as we pray, draw us to you. We're also praying, draw us to each other. Lord, I... I pray especially for those who maybe have had negative experiences of Christian community. They might have been burned or hurt by different churches or different Christians or different places. Lord, I pray today that you would begin a work of healing in their hearts and their minds. Remind us all that the church is a good idea because it's your idea. That you loved us and gave yourself up for us. So, Lord, forgive us for letting past hurts keep us from a current experience of life as you're calling us to. To be called to you is to be called to each other, Lord, and that's the desire of our hearts. That's the desire of this community. And we need the power of your spirit to make it possible. In Jesus' name.
Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.